Hi, everyone. I'm Tara Lon, and welcome to Time Out with Tinseltown Mom. I'm very happy to share some parenting nuggets with you today with my very special guest, Heather Hansen. Now, Heather is a medical malpractice defense attorney with over 20 years of trial experience. She's also one of the top 50 female attorneys in the state of Pennsylvania. Additionally, she's been a legal analyst for several major networks, including CNN, NBC, and Fox News Channel. She's currently the host of the Elegant Warrior podcast. Plus, she's the author of the book, The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself. With Back to School in Full Swing, she'll be sharing ways for kids to advocate against being a victim of school bullying. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Terrell. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here. So I appreciate your time. And just from those career highlights, you are a very busy woman. And listen, it doesn't feel busy when you enjoy it. Some of the things that you mentioned just feel like fun. But yes, my days are full. So going back to your podcast, The Elegant Warrior, by the way, I love the title. To me, the title connotes power and grace, which is a great combination. Can you just kind of give a little explanation behind the inspiration with that title? Sure. So I, in my cases, Terlon, it's, it's really hard sometimes because the patients who sue the doctors are injured. And so a lot of times they're hurting, they're in pain, sometimes catastrophically injured. So I had one particular case where a patient was definitely in pain and hurting, but also it was pretty clear to me that the evidence showed that the patient wasn't telling the truth or just didn't remember things correctly. So my job as a lawyer at the time of trial is to fight the other side's story. In this particular case, when we had to do depositions and ask questions of the opposing party, I went to the lawyer's office for the patient and the patient was really uncomfortable. He was in a lot of pain. He was in tears. He kept going to the bathroom. He was getting sick and he was so sick that we couldn't take his deposition. So a few weeks later, we came back again, same thing. And I was the only woman in the room, which isn't unusual. And I said to him, what would help you feel better? How can we get through this? And he said, my shoes, he had big Timberland boots on. And he said, my shoes are bothering me. I think maybe if my shoes weren't on, I wouldn't be so hot. So I got down on my hands and knees and I untied his shoes and I took them off his feet and he was able to go forward. He was still sick and he was still crying, but we got through the question and answer of his deposition. Then when it came time for trial, he was about to go on the stand and I knew that there were things that he had said in his deposition that were not correct according to the records. And I knew I was going to have to attack his story, not him, but his story. And right before he went on the stand, he came over to me with his mother and he said, mom, this is that nice lady I told you about, the one who helped me with my shoes at my deposition. This is what I had to wrestle with that day. As he walked to the stand, am I going to be elegant and kind and compassionate and caring, which is definitely the person that I am, but it's my job and my obligation to my client to be a warrior and to use what I have in my arsenal to win the case. So I did, and I never, ever, ever, one of the things I take great pride in is I don't take away a person's dignity, even if I have to attack their story. And at the end of the day, I knew I had done a good job in that respect. But I went to my car and I cried because I was like, who am I? Am Mm -hmm. I this elegant, compassionate woman or am I the warrior who attacks? And the book's name came out of that event. 
how do you find a way, and especially for the mothers that are listening, you know that there are times when you have to fight and you have to be the mama bear and you have to stand up for what's right and you have to speak up for yourself or your ideas or your children. And how do you do that and still stay true to who you are and who you want to be? I, I love that analogy because just me as a mom, when I'm having to discipline my kids and still having to show empathy towards them where they're going through some sort of emotional pain. But on the other hand, they've done something that, you know, clearly requires some sort of punishment. So I feel like I can be an elegant warrior in that respect as well. So it's a perfect fit. It's those times when you know you have to be tough, but you can still be kind and empathetic and elegant, whatever that word means to you. You know, the root of the word elegant Tiralan is to choose, just like elect. Now, was that earlier in your career where you had this discovery? It was relatively early. It was always something I wrestled with. And and still to this day, you know, it's hard because these people are injured. I do feel empathy and compassion. And I feel like I can do that and still pick apart the story with the evidence. Did this stir your passion for advocacy? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about advocacy is, you know, I I do a lot of keynote speaking. And when I do, I stand up and I say, who in the audience is an advocate? And not that many people raise their hands. And the definition of the word advocate is someone who speaks up publicly for something or someone. Mm. So I bet you advocate for certain TV shows in your house. I bet you advocate for certain restaurants when you're going out to dinner with your husband. I bet you advocate for your children for sure. And I hope that everyone listening advocates for themselves. And I realized that I was a really good advocate in the courtroom for my clients. I would ask questions. I would object. I would overcome objections. I would use evidence. I would build credibility. And sometimes I wasn't as good at advocating for myself. And I decided that it was going to be my job to advocate as well for myself as I do in the courtroom. And that's part of the reason I wrote the book. Okay. And is it, do you just maybe talk about one practical way that you began advocating for yourself? I think that one of the main ways that women especially struggle with is objecting, you know, setting boundaries, saying that's not okay. I think sometimes we feel like in order to object, we have to be nasty or mean. And that's not the case. You know, setting a boundary in the courtroom is just saying you've crossed a line that is not okay. You can certainly do that in your own life. And and one of the things that I talk about this in the book is in the courtroom, it was hard for me to object. I didn't want to be wrong. I didn't want to, what if the judge yelled at me in front of the jury? And at the beginning of my career, I would look to the judge sort of for permission. Like I'd look up at him and see if he was like, looked like he was on my side or she, usually a he. Yeah. Um, And afterwards, I'd look for validation, like, oh, gosh, if it wasn't sustained, I would be upset. And I realized in the courtroom and in life that we have to give ourselves permission to object, even if someone laughs, even if you might be wrong, even if it turns out that you set a boundary too close. It's better to object and give yourself permission and to give yourself the validation than not to object because you're afraid. I I love that, those points. I mean, I think we can all learn from that. Me especially, I know sometimes just it's hard for me to say no to things um, because I don't want to disappoint people or whatever the reason is. But um, I mean, I agree with you. We do need to advocate for ourselves. 
It's the best self-care, Terrellon. It really is. Because when you set a boundary, you're really protecting yourself. And at the same time, you're protecting the people around you. Then they know what works and what doesn't. And also you then have, you know, it's like the old, the old saying that if you put the oxygen on yourself first, you've set the boundary to protect yourself so that you can protect your family. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, today, we're really talking about students and ways that they can advocate for themselves, especially when it comes to bullies in school. And I know that you talk about the four P's. Can you just explain to our audience what that means and just give some examples, maybe practical yeah, examples? Absolutely. So the four P's is something that really applies with, with kids in, in bullying in school for the most part. And, and one of the interesting things about bullying that we don't often talk about is parents are really the secondary victims of bullying because it's so hard for a parent if, if your child comes home and says, you know, I was bullied today in school. It raises all of similar issues that it raises in the child. And so as a parent, you've got to understand that you're going through something too. And these four P's can be helpful for you as well. But the first P is pause. And I think that to teach our children that when something happens, they don't have to immediately react. You know, if someone says something mean to you, you don't have to say something mean back or you don't have to speak back at all. Now, if it becomes physical, that's a different question. But if we're talking about cyberbullying or verbal bullying, a pause is often a great way to disarm the situation. It also gives the child opportunity to speak to an adult, whether that's a parent or a teacher, to come home and speak to the parent and sort of go through what happened and what are some possible responses to the bullying, depending on the degree it gets to. So a pause is just, and then the same thing for a parent. You know, if your kid, if your child comes home and says, I've been bullied, and you immediately pick up the phone and call the other parent in anger or a teacher, that doesn't always serve. So that pause is an opportunity to respond rather than react. And okay. then the next key is to plan or prepare. You know, in the courtroom, we collect evidence so that we can win. And if you are looking to be a good advocate for yourself or your child in these situations, you want to make sure that they know that they can prepare. You know, you want to ask your child questions like, was anyone else around? Did anyone else see this? Is this child bullying anyone else? Have you spoken to the teacher? And all of this is collecting evidence to help you prepare for if you have to go in and speak to an administrator or a teacher, if you have to sort of talk to your child about, well, maybe this isn't bullying the way you see it, maybe, you know, because we know a lot of times children who are bullying are bullied as well or are having some troubles at home. So asking these questions and preparing gives you sort of a bigger picture and more evidence to be a stronger advocate. And then okay. a big part of it, I think, is practice. You know, because when you, I know for myself, I do a lot of work with women and advocating for themselves at work. And we talk about the Me Too movement. And a lot of women say that when they're approached by a man in a way that's inappropriate or offensive to them, they don't know how to respond. And in the moment, they almost lose the ability to speak. And I think it's the same for kids at school, that in the moment, they lose the ability to think through an appropriate response. So if you practice, like I tell grown women to have a set line that you're going to use, you know, for me, it was, I don't think that's funny. I find that offensive. That's something that I would often use when people would jokingly make completely disgusting comments. Um, but different people have different things that they want to say. But to prepare with your children and practice, 
you know, say, and then if the child says this, what are you going to do? You're going to call the teacher. You're going to tell them, I don't speak that way. You're going to say, I'm going to leave the room now. You know, whatever that, whatever you decide that the child, it's, it's best for the child to do in response, to actually practice that. So that when, not only so that when they get into the moment, there's a little bit more of a muscle memory, but also so they feel more confidence when they're approaching the school day, that they know what to do when they get in the moment. Because then you get to the fourth P, which is play. And then it's almost like pressing play on the situation. They're so prepared. They have that pause. They have practiced it. So it's no longer an emotional response. It's a response that they've thought out with their parents and that they feel really comfortable with. So really, these are tips for parents and children, even before there's any type of challenge that comes about at school. Like this is actually something they can plan and prepare for before they go back to school. Both parties. They absolutely could. They absolutely could. You know, the pausing, one of the things uh, I do with my nieces is uh, meditation. And, you know, for kids, it's a little bit different, like just a couple minutes of sort of making a space between when something happens and their reaction to that something. But the pause is an opportunity for a child to not react. And if, if you practice the pause, you know, by doing meditation, or there's another way that people do it where they sort of physically say, okay, stop now, shake it out. And so, you know, sort of shake out your arms and legs. And so that there's a moment between an event and the reaction that can be practiced. So yes, Terrilon, you can definitely practice these four Ps, you know, before you even go back to school. Yes. If you're in, especially if a child is nervous, you know, if at the school year ended and a child was being bullied, going back to school can be a traumatic experience. And practicing these four Ps can certainly make it a little bit better. Is there a practical way maybe for college students, if, since we're on this topic, that you can give as far as using the four Ps, like maybe a scenario that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, listen, in college, we worry a lot about, we see so many things for, for men and women, boys and girls, with drinking and hazing and inappropriate touching and all of those things. And so I think that with college kids, I work with them when I do a lot about learning to object and being willing to say, even with small things, like if a, if a guy touches a girl in a way that she's not comfortable with, instead of just letting that roll off her back saying, I'm not comfortable with that. Because one of the things that happens is the more that you, sh I say, instead of faking it till you make it, we wanna show it till we grow it. So the more that you show that you have an opinion, that you have a boundary, that you have some confidence, that confidence and those boundaries and those opinions have the light and the air to grow. So you want to start in little ways. Like I, you know, I don't appreciate it when you push me that way or, or I don't appreciate it when you speak to me that way at a party. And then you're setting boundaries slowly instead of waiting for the big bad event to happen. So I think that that's one of the things that you can talk about when you're talking about going back to school. Um, the planning part is also important for, for college students because you have to sort of think about like, what are the situations that I'm going to be in? Because we know that drinking is a part of going to, to college. And for some students, they're not used to this type of drinking and that can lead to binge drinking or drinking more than they know that their body can take. And so planning ahead really allows for better decisions. Yeah, now do you talk about all of this in your book? The, the book is filled with little chapters. There are pieces of this, and, but it's really meant to apply it to your life. So there's a chapter on showing it till you grow it. And it's a really um, general chapter on how to sort of, you know, build your confidence in general by, I, I tell a lot of stories. So almost every chapter is a story from the courtroom. And then what that story taught me. 
So Show It Till You Grow It is a story of a doctor that I represented who was sort of um, gruff and came off a little bit angry. And I talk about how if I had told him to be sweet and lovely on the stand, the jury would have hated him because it wouldn't be real. But mm -hmm. instead, I told him to show that he truly cared for his patients and he truly had compassion for them. And once he showed that to the jury, they responded to that and then that grew and the jury ended up loving him. But that was the idea of that particular chapter. The, the, the chapter, there is a chapter on the Me Too movement. Um, well, in my, it's called Decide Whether to Get Dirty. And it's the, you know, it's the whole premise of uh, don't play with pigs because you both get dirty and the pig likes it. So every chapter takes a lesson that I learned in the courtroom and applies it to life. Some of it having to do with bullying, some of it having to do with confidence, some of it having to do with objections. And I can see that there's elegance all throughout. Like I can just tell just the way you speak and just some of your tips that you give. There's elegance all throughout just what you do. I think that's uh, wonderful. Uh, and you're a warrior at the same time. Like you're strong, but you know, you're doing everything with elegance and grace. I, I really love that theme. Thank you uh, so much. Listen, it's, it's uh, every day is a challenge on that. You know, oh, I'm sure. But I definitely, <laughs> I'm conscious of it every day. Okay. And then I know you also have a psychology degree and you're a trained mediator and you combine all of that with your courtroom experience. Um, and then I, I've read that you, um, you teach your clients to ask better questions, master objections, and use credible persuasion to succeed. Do you teach those skills to students as well? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and a lot of the, the lessons are the same. The high school kids are tons of fun to work with because they're really, I just recently spoke at a high school and gosh, they loved it. They're, they're, especially the girls, they're just so excited at the idea that they can be their own advocates. I think it's the first, it was sort of like an aha moment for some of the kids that I can actually speak up for myself and use and not have to do so. And it doesn't have to be angry. It's not most of advocacy in the courtroom and outside of the courtroom is questions. You know, I, people say I should have been a trial lawyer. I like to argue, but I don't argue for most of my cases. I give mm. a closing argument at the very end, but the entirety of my trials is direct exams, which are questions of my witnesses and cross exams, which are questions of the other side's witnesses. So questions are the secret weapon of a good advocate. And the questions that I teach kids in high school are the same questions that I teach women and that I teach business people. Yeah, I, I love that thought. I mean, I, I read uh, or saw one of your YouTube videos where you talked about how to win an argument and that was with asking questions, which I yeah. think is very unique. I, I can see how that would work. Um, like for students, just going back to students, like what are some ways that they can ask questions maybe in a difficult moment that maybe can help them, you know, with this advocacy? Yeah, so so I talk about there's different ways to ask questions. You can ask questions to learn, and, and that's you know not only in school as far as learning your subjects, but also to learn about the people around you. You know the most powerful question that I know is a question that's not mine. I got it from Judge Rosemary Aquilina, who was the judge in the Larry Nasser trial. And at the beginning of that hearing, I was an anchor at the Law and Crime Network for that hearing, and so I watched it every day. And at the beginning of that hearing, only about 50 women were going to come forward and most of them weren't going to use their names. And by the end, I think it was something like 180 women came forward and the majority of them did use their names. And I believe that it was due to the way that Judge Aquilina asked her questions and one particular question that she asked, 
when each woman came forward, she didn't say, what do I need to know? She didn't say, tell me what happened. She didn't say, why are we here? She said, tell me what you want me to know. Hmm. That's and that question puts, makes the speaker, the answer, puts them in control. So if you're feeling in high school that perhaps there's somebody who's being difficult or challenging or maybe on the verge of bullying, but they're not quite sure, if you say to that person, tell me what you want me to know, it's often disarming because yeah. suddenly the person feels heard and appreciated and listened to. And oftentimes that's all a person wants. Now, if that's not the case and you have to challenge them, it's time to be, lean towards warrior. And in those situations, you know, it's like cross-examination. You have to prepare your questions with evidence about the answer. So you have to prepare. You have to know, you know, on cross-examination, when I ask questions on cross-examination, I already know the answer. I have the answer in my notebook somewhere, whether it's in a medical record or a deposition or a different type of record. And so I'm usually trying to really focus my questions so that they're yes or no questions. And I know that no matter what the person says, I have proof of what I want to establish. So I think that in discovery, when we're trying to learn about each other and build relationships, the questions should be broad, like, tell me what you want me to know. And when you know that you can't make those connections and it's time to challenge and use the question to win an argument, then you need your evidence, you need to be prepared, and you need to really focus in the question so that you can really fight with it. And then as far as mastering objections, um, can you give a little example of, of what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, there's I have three different chapters on objections in the book because objections are such an important part. So there's learning to object, and we've talked about that a little bit, you know, giving yourself permission and not waiting for someone else to tell you it's okay to say something's wrong. Um, giving yourself permission to set a boundary. And I know, Terrellon, you say you struggle with this as well. Like, you don't want to say no. You don't want to disappoint people. So giving yourself that permission is huge. And then a big part of what I teach and what I work on is overcoming objections, too. You know, in the courtroom, I have to overcome the other side's objections. But most of the time in my life, the hardest objections are my own. You know, Hmm. I I talk about when I was going to write the book, I was full of objections. Like, what if people laugh at you? What if no one buys it? What if it doesn't sell? What if it gets bad reviews? You know, these are all ways of objecting. In the book, I talk about a, a lesson I learned in the courtroom, but what it ultimately comes down to is working through the objection all the way to the end. So say the objection is, well, people won't buy the book. So ask yourself, so what? And if they don't buy the book, well, then you won't make any money. So what? Well, if you don't make any money, then this will have been a loss of money. So what? Well, then I can deal with that. You know, I can deal with the repercussions of this. And that allows me to overcome that objection. Hmm. And sometimes you'll find you can't deal with it. Like if I had been in a different financial situation, then maybe that objection would have been so strong that I wouldn't have written the book. You look at your own objections and work to overcome them in your head yourself you'll find other people's objections are so much easier to overcome. And I feel like it's finding security in those objections. Like, okay, yeah. well, if it doesn't sell, okay, well, I'm secure to know that if it doesn't sell, I still made a, you know, wrote a great book or whatever the situation may be. That's um, right. And then your, your last point, using credible persuasion to succeed, just can you touch on that a little bit? 
Yeah, so credibility is a, is a big thing that I talk about, and, and especially when it comes to relationships and also the relationship between doctors and patients, relationships between parents and children, and also relationships in business. We talk a lot about trust, and I think trust is amazing and vital and, and easier in long-term relationships like with your spouse or your partner or your children. But in the courtroom, I don't always have the time to build trust. You know, sometimes my cases take two or three days. I can't build trust with the jury in that time. So the first step to building trust is building credibility. And I say that building credibility means that when you set an expectation, you meet it. When you make a promise, you keep it. And if you can't, you own it. And I think that when you're starting a relationship, like when your kids go back to school, if they want to be credible with their teachers, with their classmates, with their coaches, and they set an expectation, I will be at practice at four, then they should meet that expectation. If they make a promise, I will get my homework done tonight before I go to bed, mom, then you want them to keep that promise. And if they can't, because we all come up to situations where things happen, then you need to be able to say, I know I said I would do this, I couldn't do this, and this is why. And that allows you to start build credibility and trust is founded on that foundation of credibility. So in closing, um, what insight do you hope people will get or gain from reading your book? Like, what's your goal? My goal is for everyone to realize that they are advocating every day and that they need to use those skills to advocate for themselves because no one can do it better than they can. You know, I think that so many times we wish that someone would do it for us, but no one is as well equipped to speak up for what you want and what you don't want and what's important to you than you are. And you are completely capable and more than the best person to do it. That's perfectly stated. Heather, thank you so much for joining me today. I learned a lot, I really did. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. For more on Heather Hansen, please visit her at heatherhansenpresents.com. Thanks so much for taking time out with Tinseltown Mom. If you liked what you heard today, please be so kind and rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.